Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to begin at the end of the chapter. For those of you that have been tracking with us, we've spent the last two weeks unpacking chapter 13. I'd encourage you to go back. If you missed those messages or really any of the messages, you can check out our YouTube channel and our podcast. But today we're going to pick up at the very last part of Revelation chapter 13. And I'd encourage you, as always, to have something to write to, to something to take note when God speaks, not if God speaks, but when God speaks to you, that you'll be able to reach out and grab it and keep it and apply it, that the seeds of scripture, they don't last long on the surface of our lives because the, the vultures are circling every Sunday morning. And they swoop down and they snatch the seed if we don't grab it first. So pick up your spiritual forks, get ready to stab some spiritual meat and to ingest it into your soul. The very last part of Revelation chapter 13, this calls for wisdom. This is verse 18. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So I wanted to cover this last verse of chapter 13 because we have the infamous number 666. Now, I read lots of commentaries every week and listen to different sermons on these passages that I'm studying. And Everyone has something to say about this particular verse. And the consensus of the most brilliant theological minds is, we don't know what it means. <laughs> so I want to have the theological honesty on the front end uh, to admit that this number is a mystery. Now, there is lots of speculation but that's all that it is at the end of the day. It's fun to speculate, but we must not be overly dogmatic about theological guesses. I like how one commentator put it saying this, the most we can say is that if the number, if the number of the beast is a prophecy of a future situation, no one yet has solved the meaning of the number, but its meaning will be made plain when the time comes. And so as we approach the end of days and as the global circumstances unfold, this number will take on meaning at that point in the future. Now, it's possible that the original audience had information that we don't, and so they were able to understand and apply this number in a way that we can't because we don't have the information they had, but I think it's more likely that this enigmatic number will make sense as we go deeper into the end of days. The most important number in the book of Revelation is seven. 
a letter to seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Seven in the Bible is the number of wholeness. It's the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of God. 777 would be the ultimate way of illustrating who God is. And what I want us to see in this number of the beast, in this satanic number, 666. Six is almost seven. It's almost right. It's just barely off. It's not 111 or it's not even 555. It's 666, which means it is right there on the edge of being true. The most dangerous lies are partially true, and this will be especially prevalent as we approach the end of days. And the enemy, the dragon, who is empowering the, the beast from the sea, which is the Antichrist, and the beast from the earth, which is the false prophet, and they will pervert truth. They will corrupt the truth. They will twist the truth. And it will be barely off. It's like when you know something isn't right. There's this sixth sense where something isn't adding up here, where there's some, there's more going on. I can't quite put my finger on it, but something isn't right. That's discernment. 666 is a way of illustrating the ultimate expression of evil, a satanic attempt to counterfeit what God has done through Jesus Christ. You have the gospel and the anti-gospel. You have Christ and the antichrist. You have the Holy Spirit and the unholy spirit. Rather than focus our energy on best guesses, we should focus on what is abundantly clear, not just in the book of Revelation, but throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And this is what is clear. We don't know exactly what that number 666 means, but we do know that there will be a time of unprecedented persecution against biblical Christianity in the end days. I don't think we've done a very good job of preparing the emerging generations to thrive in the midst of a culture that is not faith-friendly. It is a blessing when I look at the screen and I see young adults. I, I pray for the day when the majority of faces on this screen are young adults. It is a blessing for me when I see youth. It is a blessing for me when I see children sitting with their parents or with their grandparents. I am blessed by that because there's a key part of discipleship is just showing up. And just by showing up, we're making a value statement. We're saying to the emerging generations that this is worth our time, that this is worth the energy. This is worth the effort. And they're receiving the message loud and clear one way or the other. I don't think we've done, and I include myself in that, I don't think we've done a great job of preparing the emerging generations for what the Bible says will happen. I don't think we've discipled them to expect persecution. On the contrary, I think, at least in North America, we have produced generations of entitled Christians, many of whom are spiritual snowflakes that wither in the face of opposition. And I don't blame them. I blame us. I blame me. 
when a soldier isn't prepared for deployment, it's not the fault of the soldier, it's the fault of the superior officers. There is a training problem. There is a boot camp problem. And so rather than blame the teenagers for not being spiritually strong, we need to ask the harder question that there is a there is a critical flaw in the discipleship factory that is producing um, that, that, that is producing superficial Christianity. This is what happens to many young adults that were raised in Christian homes, but their superficial faith gets exposed and decimated their first year in university. Their faith struggles to survive in a hyper-secular environment. And I have the privilege of being a university pastor for a lot of years. And I see a couple of faces out there <laughs> uh, and lifelong connections. And I've never been in a better disciple-making environment than in a university setting, right? The, 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 those years are so formative. Youth ministry, I'd put that in the same category, where faith is being forged um, in the teenage years, in those young adult years. But what I, so I had a front row seat to witness this every fall. Every fall, especially where I grew up and where I served as university in university ministry in, um, in Louisiana, in Arkansas, in Texas. And these are, this is an area known as the Bible Belt, uh, where there's lots of churchianity, there's lots of religiosity, where you throw a rock in any direction in, some, in most of these small towns, it's going to land in on some religious real estate. Um, and so these students would be raised in a religious environment. But once they got to the college campus, oftentimes their faith was not strong enough to withstand the secularism that is amplified in a university environment. It's a hyper-secular environment. And here's the deal. If, if they struggle to survive an introductory biology class that attacks creationism taught by an atheist professor, then what hope do they have of enduring what the book of Revelation describes? And when I, when I was in youth ministry, university ministry, um, I, I would keep my finger on the pulse of what was happening with my people group. And some of the surveys were as high as 80%, but even the conservative ones, half, half of youth that were raised in Christian homes leave church while they're in college or during those young adult years, some of which never to return. And we just keep perpetuating a system that is not accomplishing the mission of disciple making. And when there's a problem, we enhance a, a system that isn't working. We amplify a system that, is, that, that isn't producing desired results. So we think that if we, if we just somehow turn the volume up, that it's going to fix the problem. And that's not the problem. There's a deeper issue here, and it's a discipleship issue. 
the mission of the church isn't to make Christians, but to make disciples. So we need to do a better job of developing, of developing, of cultivating deeply rooted disciples. Those with the fortitude and the stamina that is going to be required when we encounter what the Bible says will happen as we push deeper into the end of days. So God has given us this graphic picture of what the end of days will look like. And so we need to prepare accordingly. So youth groups need to stop playing games and need to start digging deep, digging down deep and laying that bedrock foundation. That's what, and I'm guilty of it too, right? When I was in youth ministry, you know, and now that I have children that are teenagers, it makes me want to go back and be a youth pastor again, to be honest with you. We need some 45-year-old youth pastors. We need some 50-year-old college pastors that get it, that have been around long enough to know, that have been deployed behind enemy lines, and that have the, the scars to prove that they have survived the battles so that we can prepare these emerging generations for what the Bible says will happen. I want my children to be connected to a youth ministry that does more than play silly games. Now, I'm not against games, but when that becomes the main course of your student ministry and the Bible becomes more an appetizer, then we have a problem, right? If you're attracting them with silliness, and then you're slipping in the scripture, the side door, right? We need to do a better job of being up, up front with these emerging generations, with my kids. I need to do a better job with my own kids who are teenagers so that they can have fortitude and stamina, a faith with supernatural tenacity that is impervious to erosion. Where I grew up in South Arkansas, the pine tree is the cash crop with forestry being the primary industry. My father, like his father before him, was a forester. And so I spent a lot of time growing up as a boy and as a teenager in the woods with my dad. The highway, the highways in South Arkansas are full of log trucks taking timber to the mills to be processed. One of the reasons people plant pine trees is because they grow fast. My dad would plant these, these seedlings, and they were called super tree seedlings. These pine trees that had been genetically modified to grow fast, because the faster they grow, the sooner they can be harvested, and the, more, and, and the sooner you can see a return on your profit. But they grow fast, but their root systems are shallow, and so they are easily toppled by strong storms. And so that was a common sight where I grew up is pine trees that would be blown over by storms. I also lived in South Louisiana, and my wife is from Louisiana, and I saw another kind of tree, the live oak. 
Many of these massive trees were centuries old and had survived multiple hurricanes. And perhaps the most interesting fact about these oaks is that their root, their root systems will grow almost to mirror their height, pushing down deep. They, they go down deep as the tree is high and branching out as wide as the branches. The oak can withstand incredibly strong storms like tornadoes and hurricanes, even when they are thrashed by the violent wind and stripped of their leaves, oak trees survive because of their incredible root systems. We need to cultivate more oaks and less pines, especially as we study the book of Revelation and learn about the coming storms of persecution. So let's read the first part of chapter 14 and we'll tackle the rest of chapter 14, Lord willing, next week. But I want us just to crank down the microscope on this first part, because I believe it holds some vital information for us. Right? That's the thing about the book of Revelation, is that it's a discipleship book. I mean, that commentary there? Let me show you my favorite commentary on the book of Revelation. It's this one right here. I don't know if you can see it through the glare. There it is. And this book, this commentary by Daryl Johnson is called Discipleship on the Edge. And so he's approaching the book of Revelation, not as a crystal ball, but as a field guide for Christians, for kingdom people, for people of the Lamb that are living in the territory of the dragon, that we are living behind enemy lines. And so it, it holds critical information, not for some future generation that are going to witness these events firsthand, but for us. We, the end of days were initiated when Jesus ascended to heaven. So we've been in the midst of the end of days for 2,000 years. So that means we're closer now than ever. And it's possible that we could be the generation that witnesses the ultimate fulfillment of the book of Revelation. It's possible that we are the ones that will have, that will be called upon to pay the ultimate price, to lay our lives down on the altar as an act of ultimate worship to our king, to the lamb. And so we read the book of Revelation and we lean into it because of this. So let's read Revelation 14 verses one to five. Then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like, like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. 
They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And let's go back and process what we just read. And again, we have to have the right software downloaded into our minds in order to accurately understand apocalyptic literature. And so remember, if you go back to the very first message, I attempted to lay some ground rules to give us some practical tools for interpreting apocalyptic literature that for almost the rest of the Bible, we assume something is literal unless it's obviously not. But for apocalyptic literature, that gets flipped and we assume something is symbolic unless it's obviously not. And that's where people get into trouble. That's where translators get into trouble is they don't shift their lens. They don't shift from the literal lens to the apocalyptic lens. They don't change out their software. And so they're trying to run the book of Revelation through, through a, a, a program that wasn't designed to interpret apocalyptic literature. And so we come out with faulty conclusions. And so we need to assume that it is metaphorical, that it is symbolic, unless it's obviously not. And, and again, reading multiple commentaries and listening to multiple sermons, it gets a little confusing when people switch back and forth and they switch from a literal to a symbolic, they switch from a literal to a metaphorical and they switch based upon their preconceived notions of what the text needs to say. And so we, we make the text fit in our pre-cut boxes and the challenge for all of us is to approach, approach the book of Revelation and to allow the scripture to shape our eschatology. And sometimes, like I said last week, we need to do some demolition before we do some building. Chapter 14 begins with a praise break. Remember, we have just learned about the dragon empowering a beast that emerges from the sea and then another beast that emerges from the land, forming this unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They will rise to power and deceive the nations and conquer the people of the Lamb. And it really camped out on that last week, and we'll come back to this again next week with an apocalyptic beatitude, right? So stay tuned for, for the rest of the story next week. But we learned in chapter 13 that this was going, this is going to happen at some point. And this is a somber scene. So chapter 14 brings us some hope in the midst of the harshness. We have a praise break here. Then I looked and this is the favorite phrase in the book of Revelation, is the apostle John being captivated by one graphic image after another graphic image, and behold, look, that's what he's saying, and the people in the original audience, remember, they didn't break this up into chapters and verses. This was a letter 
written to actual Christians that were a part of actual churches. And John wasn't primarily a prophet. He was a pastor. And so the people are sitting on the edge of their seats and they're thinking to themselves, I wonder what he's going to see next. And so they are strapped into this apocalyptic roller coaster, these emotional highs and these emotional lows. It's a, a, an emotional journey through the book of Revelation. And we have a much needed praise break here. Then I looked and there before me was the lamb and the lamb is the central figure in the book of Revelation. A lamb that is at the very center of the throne in heaven, a lamb looking as if it had been slain, a slaughtered lamb at the very center of all things, this lamb being Jesus Christ. And again, this is metaphorical, right? When Jesus returns, is he actually going to be a four-legged lamb? Is he actually going to be, it look like a lamb? No, right? So when we, when we read this here, that I looked and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. And this should ring a bell because We've come across this number before, back in chapter 7, this 144,000, not literal. Again, he talks about the lamb, which is symbolic, which is metaphorical, and then he talks about the 144,000, right, which is also not literal. It's metaphorical. It's symbolic, representing the people of God, the 144,000 that are marked by the Lamb, that sing this special song, the song of the redeemed. And we'll see next week that there's an angel that preaches the gospel, but only a Christian can sing of redemption. And that's the special song that is uniquely Christian, is that they, we Christians, have been bought by God out of slavery, of sin, bought by God out of judgment and hell, and we have been redeemed. We have been purchased at a price, and that price was the life of the Son of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. And that stamp on our forehead, after we are purchased, that communicates ownership. Paul said to the church in Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. One of Paul's favorite words in the New Testament, in the language of the New Testament, is doulos. And doulos literally means slave. In most English translations, the translators tried to soften that original word by translating doulos as servant. But there are other Greek words for servant. And the apostle Paul did not choose to use those words for servant. He uses the word doulos over and over again, which means that we are slaves of the king, that we have a master. And that is offensive to our flesh. Therefore, that we try to soften, we try to soften that biblical truth by translating it in a word that is more acceptable. 
but we see this group in the book of Revelation, the people of God that have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And because of this, we can sing a special song, a song of the redeemed, a song that can only come from a place that has experienced forgiveness, personally experienced grace. What we see in this passage is worship. We declare victory in the midst of apparent defeat, and it will be defeat. The people of the Lamb will be conquered by the dragon, but it is a temporary defeat. We sing our, we sing our theology, which flows from God's word rather than from our emotions rather than from our circumstances. And this will seem crazy to those who don't have a biblical perspective. It will look like those on death row singing about freedom. People will think that Christians are crazy. This will seem insane to those that don't have a biblical worldview. We sing about the light in the darkest parts of the night. And what we see in the book of Revelation is that worship is warfare. When we worship, we unleash the light. When God's people gather, there is always supernatural potential. Hell should always take notice when God's people gather. And to be honest with you, that's one of the hardest parts of the season that we're in right now when we're not able to physically gather. And yet that is such a key part of who we are as Christians. Community is not an optional accessory to Christianity. It is absolutely essential. I can never become who I was created to be in isolation and neither can you. And it's more than individual though, it's the cumulative of God's people gathering and what happens in the spiritual world as there's an explosion of light, a shockwave of light that washes over a neighborhood, that washes over a community, that washes over a city. And when you have multiple explosions of light happening in the same city every week, it pushes back the darkness incrementally. And when we're not allowed to gather, um, it's a big deal. It should be a big deal. And if it isn't a big deal, if it isn't a big deal for you, uh, then this becomes a diagnostic moment that perhaps what you were experiencing wasn't biblical community. That this pandemic perhaps is an opportunity to assess the depth of our faith and the depth of our commitment to biblical community. Because superficial connections aren't missed, but deeply rooted connections. You know, I read a story one time about these redwood groves, that's what they're called. Some of the biggest living things on the planet are trees these sequoias. And 
I read this article one time that said the reason they're able to live so long is because they don't live in isolation. It's not one tree standing by itself for thousands of years. It's a grove. And they're able to survive and thrive even for so long because the root systems interlock below the surface and they're stronger together. And as I read that, I thought it was such a beautiful picture of Christian community that we are deeply connected below the surface at the level of the soul so that we can withstand the storm as individuals because we are interlocked below the surface with other believers, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you have this group, the people of God, that are worshiping in spite of their circumstance, that are worshiping from death row, that are worshiping from internment camps, that are singing songs of victory in the face of apparent defeat. And you notice that their gaze, the gaze of the apostle John throughout the book of Revelation is on the lamb. And this 144,000 that are with the lamb, that are stamped with the blood of the lamb, like a seal with the imprint of the cross burned into the soul of the followers of the lamb that marks ownership. We don't focus our gaze on the beast. It's easy to get distracted by the spectacular and many will be deceived. We become what we behold. And so we're not beholding the beast. That's why so many Christians become more and more worldly and less and less godly because they focus their gaze on the things of this world, on the political maneuverings and the political leadership and the political platforms of this world. And we become what we behold. And kingdom people should be constantly beholding the lamb. Hebrews chapter 12, one of my all-time favorite passages. Of course, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. All of these people from the Old Testament that God used. And then the author of the book of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and it's interesting that he speaks as if these people are present, even though they lived hundreds, even thousands of years before. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. And these aren't intrinsically evil things, right? Let us throw off everything that hinders good things that hinder our spiritual growth are to be thrown off, discarded. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race, the race marked out for us. Here it is, verse two. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us consider him, Jesus, who endured such treatment from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. To run with endurance. That's written in the present tense. To, to fix our gaze is written in the present tense. Therefore, let us fix our gaze, continually fix our gaze, because here's the, here's the tactic of the enemy, is to gradually distract us. And so we'll see flashes in our peripheral vision, right? And we'll be tempted to take our eyes off of the lamb and to put them on a, a situation in this world. And so we must constantly, right? We must constantly be refocusing our gaze and recalibrating our lives around the lamb. That's why this rhythm of weekly worship is so vital because it should refocus our gaze. We recalibrate our lives every week when we gather to worship the Lamb. The Old Testament partner passage to Revelation 14, 1 to 5, is Psalm 2, which is all about the nations rebelling against God and how God ultimately overcomes their rebellion. This is interesting to note. The New Testament quotes Psalm 2 more than any other Old Testament text. I didn't know that until I studied this week for this sermon. So I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but part of your homework is to read Psalm 2 because the original audience, when they heard the first part of chapter 14, would have probably immediately connected it to Old Testament passages like Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And in the very last part, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so Psalm 2 is describing the nations that are raging, that are conspiring, that are rebelling against the one true God. It's the same rebellion that was at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, the rebellion that we've inherited in our sinful nature. That is the root of sin, is rebellion against God. To think that we know better than God, to think that we can manage our lives better than God is an act of rebellion. I like how Eugene Peterson puts part of Psalm 2 in the message. Earth leaders push for position. Demagogues and delegates meet for summit talks. The God deniers, the Messiah defiers. Let's get free of God. Cast loose from the Messiah. This is the global religion of secular humanism. And so you have these summits of political leaders that are doing everything humanly possible to solve 
spiritual problems with human solutions. And they fall short every time. That's one of the stories of history. The first part of verse four is the most controversial, but it makes sense when we read it through the proper lens, when we interpret it through an apocalyptic lens. As we go back to Revelation 14, and you see this here, where at first glance, it seems bizarre that these who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins, and they followed the lamb wherever he goes. We'll come back to that last part as we conclude in a moment. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Again, this isn't literal. Some people interpret this as a literal 144,000 Jewish men that are virgins. But you'd, ha you'd have to also, again, you can't selectively apply that, <laughs> that, that posture. This also would mean that they never told a lie in verse 5. So there has to be something else going on here, right? And it is because John is speaking metaphorically. It, he's communicating this, that God wants intimacy with his people. He wants more than your profession of faith. He wants more than a doctrinal statement. He wants relationship. He wants intimacy. In the Old Testament, idolatry is seen as spiritual adultery. Later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 17 to 19, John talks about Babylon the Great as the mother of harlots who makes the nations drunk with adultery. So throughout the Old Testament, you have this metaphor of God's people as a bride. And unfortunately, many times this bride commits adultery on God with these other things from the surrounding nations, from the, host, from the host cultures, and God sends his prophet to rebuke his people and to call back his bride. 2 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So God desires relationship. God desires for us to be fully committed to him. He desires intimacy. And the reality is that some of us have, some of us are spiritual polygamists, that what we wouldn't tolerate physically, we have embraced spiritually, is that we're sleeping around on God and we're committing spiritual adultery by giving part of our heart to the things of this world, giving part of our devotion, giving part of our allegiance. And so we have a divided heart. Let's conclude with verse 4b, the last part of verse 4. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And this, this really encouraged me. This really convicted me. Like at the end of the day, 
this is the job description for every Christian is to follow the lamb wherever he leads. Jesus is the perfect lamb whose fleece is stained with blood. And everywhere the lamb went, his followers were sure to go. This is the foundational call of discipleship. When Jesus physically approached people, he would say, follow me. And this was a radical departure from the standard operating procedure of his day. Typically, potential disciples would approach a rabbi and ask, may I follow you? And Jesus did something that was shocking. He did something that was scandalous. The rabbi went to the disciple and invited the disciple to follow him. And the people he invited had been rejected by the religious system of his day. They weren't good enough. And so they had been kicked out of school and sent home to do some less important career. The foundational call of discipleship is still the same. The same Jesus still approaches every person at some point in their journey and extend the invitation, follow me, follow me. One commentator puts it this way, I am in the job I'm in because I followed the lamb here. I am in the relationship I'm in because I followed the lamb here. I live where I live because I followed the lamb here. And thus they are able to say in the end, I am in heaven because I followed the lamb here. Can we truly say that we are followers of the Lamb? How far behind the Lamb are you? There's a saying, and it's a, a saying from the culture of the Bible. When discipleship was such a part of their culture, right, where you had rabbis, that would go from town to town and they'd have a group of people with them that followed them, that lived with them. And there was this saying from this biblical culture to be covered in the dust of my rabbi, that you're following so closely to your rabbi that the dust kicked up from his sandals falls on your life. And it's a saying that communicates closeness. The land of the Bible was incredibly dusty. It's, it's a desert environment. And so as the, the rabbi isn't kicking up dust, there's these little clouds of dust that are caused by the footsteps of the rabbi. And a good student would be so close that those pieces of dust from the sandal of his rabbi would fall on his life. 
how far behind the rabbi are you? Some of us started well, and we followed close to Jesus, and we would say that old hymn, wherever he leads, I'll go. I follow my Christ who loves me so, wherever he leads, I'll go. And in those early stages of our faith, we were close to the rabbi. But as the months turned into years, and some of us, the years turned into decades, the distance between you and the rabbi has slowly grown. Until now, the rabbi is barely visible. And you're basing, you're basing your life on a memory of the rabbi rather than on a present tense relationship. And so to, today I want us to call, I wanna, I wanna call us to worship, to approach the lamb and to reaffirm our commitment as disciples, as followers of the Lamb. Can you honestly say that you are where you are because the Lamb has led you here? That you live where you live because the Lamb has led you there? That you work where you work because the Lamb has led you there? Some of us need to repent of spiritual polygamy. What we, would not, what we would never tolerate physically, we have embraced spiritually. We need to repent. God has never been okay and will never be okay with adultery. We need to repent and return. And the rabbi is always a breath away. Regardless of how far we've drifted, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to repent, to cleanse us, to forgive us and so that we can say that we are covered in the dust of our rabbi. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage in Revelation 14. Lord, that is a call to worship in spite of our circumstance, a call to worship in spite of what's happening in our world, that we unleash the light when we gather for worship. So even now, may there be a shockwave of light that goes out from our lives into our homes, that goes out from our homes into our communities, that goes out from our communities into our cities, that goes out from our cities into our continent and from our continent into our world as we push back the darkness and help us, Lord, to recalibrate our lives and to rededicate ourselves to you and to be fully devoted, fully committed, having an undivided heart so that we can truly say, I am where I am because the lamb has led me here. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. 
Love y'all.